out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist. It is the one and only Martin Brammer, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Member and probably the main man of the Blue Orchids. They have a new album out, which is titled Speed the Day, which is, um, yes, he says. I think it's on Tiny Global Productions. It is. Um, And that's just come out. And they have got some live dates, and they've just played some live dates, so that's all good. And obviously, I say obviously, it might not be. But anyway, he was one of the original members of The Fall with Marky Smith. So, um, yes, this interview will feature all that exciting stuff. So, um, after several minutes of casual chat... We got down to that very exciting subject that was the new album, and I was just talking about about it in great depth. Well, not that much, but um, yes, I mentioned and asked him when he started to record and write it, and this is Martin's response. Martin, it's over to you. Well, I'm always writing, you know. Um, so, that, I mean, that was... Um, with, with the COVID delay and everything last year, I mean, that... We kind of missed a year as far as releasing albums with the current label goes. So um, uh, the, the writing took, you know, over the, probably a two-year period more or less. But I'm, I'm most kind of writing, um, and that was the result of the certain period of, of writing. Um, yes, it reflects, you know, that, that's that, yeah, not phasing time really. Yeah, um, but but did you? <laughs> I mean, so it's not. I was going to say, did you have to? sort of do the thing that a lot of artists were doing during that period, apart from quite a lot I know noticed or they said they just didn't have any inspiration during this sort of, especially last year, and pointed to guitars that hadn't been restrung for six months and saying they just haven't kind of got the, I don't know, do they call it mojo? Or they didn't have what they needed to sort of do anything Mm -hmm. and and so they were slightly worried about feeling so lethargic. How did you cope during last year? Well, it's, it's made me busier, really, as a musician. I mean, as a writer, because of all the the dead time of being isolated, yeah, you know, that we all went through. But um, I mean, with with this album that's, that's just come out, I say this album because I've, I've written a whole new album on on to record during the second lockdown, right. which was a very intense writing period. I wrote a complete album in probably three months. And we've yet to record it, but everything's written and ready to go. So, and that that was like this winter lockdown, which uh, I went, I, I kind of went very, you know, kind of internalised my view, and there was a kind of very wordy, intense record this time. But getting back to the one that we, that's just come out, uh, that was done in a, a short window in sort of July, August last year, um, and yeah, and it was a really uh, positive experience, really. But again, that album was ready to go just before the first lockdown was announced. So we wanted to kind of preserve, you know, that, that feeling of the last rehearsal before. Because we had like one more rehearsal before we started recording, and then lockdown, the first lockdown came. So uh, that knocked the whole thing back uh, like five months. Yes. Uh, so so that, this, this album, Speed the Day, um, is like pre the lockdown, even though we recorded it. Uh, in the summer after the first lockdown, yeah, in a little window in July. Right, God, it's 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 so, kind of so, made... yeah. So 
Yeah. I was going to say, it's made, it's made recording and being an artist at the moment quite sort of, you have to be nimble, don't you? You can't mess about. Did it mean that yeah. you had booked a studio for this? We, we, well, we booked one initially that had to be cancelled, you know. Uh, but then when um, we recorded, we, we, we rehearsed and recorded the whole album in uh, six days in a week, you know, in one week. Uh, we, we just re-rehearsed everything for three days and then went in the studio for three days. Um at, at the end of July, beginning of August that week, uh, just the whole thing. Yeah, you know, things we were able to get back together. And did you and that, reasonably? And have you found because kind of one thing that I've noticed doing this show, and sort of over the last four or five years, that there's kind of been kind of a bit of a, a rise or interest in sort of a lot of these kind of slightly obscure bands from the 80s and obviously you've probably seen documentaries on the nightingales and robert lloyd and yeah. there was a film about george best and the not the football player but the album mm. by the wedding presents and everybody yeah. seems to be bringing a book out and discovering and enjoying either discovering bands for the first time yeah. or realizing that they're probably you know were slightly overlooked in the in the push and the rush of life and and have kind so. of decided to to sort of scratch back and think oh actually i'm not sure if scratch back is quite the right phrase but you know sort of un- unearthing stuff and thinking actually yeah. this has been I, I quite Ch- yeah chumba wumba are doing a similar documentary aren't they uh but yeah your point is well taken but um i have noticed during lockdown that a lot of people are reflecting on their musical interests and, and uh, getting more into the, maybe the history of some of the bands they liked and discovering other bands and we benefited from that um, I think we I don't know quite why it's turned out that way but I have noticed that um, uh, people are kind of reflecting on the music of the last 20-30 years and stuff and um, rediscovering Blue Ox to some extent Yeah, so it seems to be a good time for us anyway yes. but we've been consistently putting out albums over the last few years thanks to Tiny Global support which makes all the difference you know so yeah yes. it's all quite positive on that front for us yeah. well I think my vague theory about this was that when things are happening, we can take it all for slightly for granted and just assume yeah, that's it. And then realise that the moment that you think is going to last forever doesn't last forever and then we sort of get on with other things. And then there's a sort of reflection. I really hate sort of rose-tinted sunglasses of the past, but I've sort of looked back at bands that I missed the first time, you yeah, know, yeah. Heaven, heaven forbid to admit that, and thought, oh, actually, I missed this band. I'll, I'll have a listen now. And then think, I can't believe I missed Easter House the first time. Or when I listened to mm-hmm. bands like mm-hmm. The Chameleons, who I quite liked, yeah. but I didn't mm-hmm. weren't obsessed with them. And then I become more obsessed with them. And then I sort of heard, it was The Flood, I have to confess. Yeah. When I heard The Flood, that was like right. from the Blue Orchids. That was a play. That was a moment where I thought, my God, this is such an amazing song. This has got everything that I love about music from the the slightly, I'm not sure if you, you'd listen to David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes, but there was a little kind of interesting bit to begin with, isn't there, from, is it a Japanese um, moment? Oh, um, uh, it's no game on the Scary Monsters. Yes, and the flood starts with a little bit of a, Strange, yeah, it's a Norwegian studio choir. Uh, yeah, oh. Lore of Love by Knut Newstead, a Norwegian composer. That I, I just um taped from Radio 3. Uh, I just was had the radio on and it had a cassette player attached back in the late 70s, you know, radio cassette player. And um, this music came on Radio 3, I thought it was amazing, and just press record and caught the second half of it. 
and just uh, sent that. I uh, took that cassette tape to the studio and just got them to include it at the start of the song. So it's that's, early sampling. That's <laughs> that is very early song and quite basic, but actually, it very just basic. it does yes, but nice. it. It does. It, works. it worked so well because it sort of grabs mm. your attention, and then it has this kind of—I don't know—I was going to say the word. No, that's a terrible word. Um, but I was going to say thrusting, but that's a, not a great word. But it has a drive to it, doesn't it? It's kind of got an immediacy yeah. and a kind of energy that one just yeah. immediately kind of thinks, "God, this is quite extraordinary." And there are, you know, yeah. you know. And I did notice the, the opening track on the new album is also got that kind of intense, raw, deeper mm-hmm. than sin, which is again, yeah. yes, it, it still has that kind of quality. Because last night, interesting enough, it's not that interesting, but I did an interview with a guitarist called Randy Holden, who was in The Sons of Adam, the other half, and Blue Cheer, and he was one of those oh, right. guitarists from that the 60s garage punk yeah. period. And, yeah. um, and one of those bands, and I can't remember which one they did, Mr. Pharmacist, which was covered by, obviously, Marky Smith and the Fall. Yep. yep. Decades later. Were you, I mean, going back, because you were sort of born 57, were you, what was your kind of early kind of musical kind of influences and, and sort of moments that you started to find kind of a record or a scene that, that made you very excited? Yeah, yeah. Um well, like I say, born in 57. Um, and to me, my earliest memories of music are really from the radio and TV because we didn't have a record player or anything you could like choose to put various pieces of music on. You, you know what I mean? The, the technology then wasn't that available in our house. So I was like 14 before we actually had a record player. So to my early memories, it was really sort of radio Right, um, and so the, the, the you know the pop charts. Uh, yeah, I just got a sort of general education in pop and rock, listening casually. Um, the, the Kinks stood out, and the Rolling Stones, and things like that. But I, quite often, if I liked something, I'd presume it was the Rolling Stones as a child. I'm talking like pre, you know, teens. Yes. Uh, but the radio was just in the background. It wasn't something I really focused on music. And then I think at a certain age. Um, I think glam rock turned my head on top of the pops, you know, like 12 or 13. I suddenly was interested in T-Rex out of the blue. So I was like, but, um, but then it, things moved very quickly from there. But I didn't have like an, um, a very sophisticated musical, musical education. I was just like a working class lad. Um, and, and pop music was in the background. That, and that was pretty much it. And easy listening, you know, from the grandparents and yes. all the rest of it. My, my parents liked the Beatles, so that was old fashioned to me at the time, you know. Well, absolutely. What is interesting... I don't know, I'm rambling. I, I have to be specific because I, I wasn't, like, educated musically. Nobody sort of sat me down and said, you should be listening to this from an early age. It was just... Um, music was just the, kind of in the background, as I say, just something on the radio in the kitchen. But you'd hear the tune that caught your attention. Yes. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, well, I was born... <laughs> let's swap Let's swap birthday dates. But I was born 64. We didn't have a record player come into the house until about 1973 because my, you know, from a working-class family who were from the countryside, I mean, when my parents got married in the 50s, I think they just had to sell everything to get some money to get a little house to sort of then, you know, they didn't have debt. They wouldn't have debt ever. So it was kind of like, like you. It was, you know, and I haven't met that many people who didn't have anything other 
other than the telly and the radio. So my mum would have the yeah. radio on in the kitchen. It was Radio 2 yeah. and then there was all those yeah. kind of songs and then there was little things that would catch my eye, ear. And one of them, actually, I always remember was Scylla Black's Step Inside Love from the from her TV right, series. Yeah. And I just... Lo- about her voice. Yeah. And her dramatic... Anyone who ever... Anyone who ever had a heart by Scylla Black really moved me as a child. As soon as you're asking me... I can remember, um, you know, you get these memories of a certain moment and I was sat at a little desk at home playing with plasticine and uh, Silver Black, anyone who ever had a heart came on. And I was moved, like, uh, in a mature way, you know. I just remember being, like, really feeling her emotion, you know. Yes. So that was quite a, a big musical moment. Silla, again, so uh, <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> well, we do, but I do also remember having an absolute love affair with the Carpenters because I found, right. found those songs... Yeah. And I always said to myself and to the cats and anybody else, um, if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths because actually they were such sad songs. And for a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. hearing things like I Say Goodbye to Love or, you know, Rainy Days yeah. and Mondays, I mean, it was just like, my God, that's so tragically depressing. But at the same time... It's not produced, though. It's the quality of the sounds as well, not just the songs are good, but, you know, there's something about those recordings, isn't there? You know, the Carpenters. Yes. The quality of the voices and... You know, Yes. So then, after that experience of all wanting to be in Gary's gang, as long as as well as T Rex and Slade and Sweet, yeah. and luckily yeah. David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity, which B side had yeah. changes and Space um, and Velvet Goldmine. What was your kind of early musical purchase? My first musical purchase. Yes. Was um, well, uh, was um, Slade because I love you. Uh, on 45, and I started buying singles, you know. Nice. That would have been, like, at the age of 14. So that, yeah, that was just in the charts that week, and I had enough money to go and buy a single, so... And then, yeah, yeah. Slade. And then the second one was uh, Jeep to buy T-Rex. God, that's quite cool, isn't it, really? It wasn't the Wombles, was it? I had some good singles at the time, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then when did you... Family by... uh, Oh, Sly. Sly, God, that's a, anyway, that's a, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Have you ever heard Iggy Pop's like version of um, Family Affair? Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. It's quite I've, good. I must have heard everything Iggy Pop's ever recorded. Right. I'm a massive fan of Iggy Pop. I mean, I quickly moved on from, like, T-Rex and Bowie to uh, New York Dolls, the Stooges, you know, the, the, the American kind of pre-punk punk that was coming in. Yes. So, um uh, yeah, uh, Iggy was a massive influence on me when I was young. I just thought he was amazing. So, yeah, I listened to most of his music over the years. It is quite something. So then when did you find yourself purchasing a guitar? Ah, yeah, well, my, my first guitar, my, my uh, stepfather brought it home when I was about 14, a, a classical guitar. It was right-handed, and I was left-handed, so I, I restrung it. It was just a cheap classical nylon string guitar that I've... I, uh, a colleague at work had sold him. He was a chef at uh, our time in Manchester. And one of the lads had sold him this cheap classical guitar, which was a nice gift. So but I didn't really take to it. It was just sat in my bedroom, like most people, for a couple of years. Like, I learned two chords and didn't really take it seriously. But then um, suddenly it was a useful thing to have because music started becoming uh, you know, of more interest. Yes. So, so yeah. So, so I was probably, like I said, in the room for a year, year, two years before I started really playing it. Yeah. And did you? I was trying to play. <laughs> so was it at sort of the mid seventies when your first yeah. musical combo started to sort of happen? 
Yeah, well, all my friends, you know, was were into music, uh, and we all had varying tastes and things in common. But it was a very intense time for music, the, the mid seventies, I think. It's, uh, yeah, especially if you're a teenager, there was so much to discover, and we were like really hungry for music. So yeah, from the naive beginnings in sort of glam rock and hard rock and stuff, we quickly developed quite sophisticated taste in in music. All the music that was available, we had quite broad taste. Yeah. I just wondered how... Well, as a guitarist, yeah. Yeah, I just wondered... As a wondered... guitarist, I started with the blues. I learned some blues standards. Uh, I was self-taught, but I obviously I bought a couple of books with blues standards in, and I learned them from the books, you know. Right. Uh, and then I kind of want to uh, invert it all. Mm. You know, um, my early songwriting, it was all about kind of... A, stripping away the cliches and kind of inverting the patterns to create something new or different but that still had the you know rock feel a blues feel you know but I learned from playing blues standards and then just tried to develop an original style yes like a lot of jazz guitar as well but um, you, know, you know but basically I was like into, I was still a punk rock at heart I guess and I was you know Studios and the Velvet Underground and all that. So when did you start listening to the sort of Nuggets collections? Because mm. that's always quite... About a... the same time as Punk was starting, really, you know. 76, that's when Nuggets came out, isn't it, I think? Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, reviewed in the papers and we were on it, so we were listening to all that stuff at the same time we were listening to the punk bands at the time, you know. It's all kind of contemporary in that sense. Because, I mean, I, I didn't know about... The, I knew about the Stooges before I knew about the Doors, for instance, you know, as a teenager in the 70s. Uh, I, you know, Bowie was raving about Iggy Pop and the Stooges, so I'd listen to the Stooges. And then um, Iggy Pop was talking about Jim Morrison as a big influence. And so I'm like, who's this Jim Morrison guy? I'd heard of the Doors, but thought there was something like bread. I, was, I had no idea, you know. And then... Um, but I knew this Jim Morrison guy was interesting because Iggy Pop raided him. And, and then, you know... Got it all backwards. Yes. So uh, yeah. So so yeah. But the Doors are a massive influence, a classic band, obviously. But I discovered them via the Stooges, which is uh, the wrong way around, I guess. It's interesting because the Doors don't really kind of. They were one of those bands I remember in the eighties being absolutely obsessed with the end and then sort of break on through and then you sort of, you know... And I love that last album he did where he obviously decided this. he was just going to do this one album and then just disappear to Paris. And I just think, you know, it's kind of like all the songs on that album are like a bit of a, a goodbye to his kind of friends and family and everybody. Yeah. And yeah. I just always find that kind of mesmerising. I think it was one of those classic album series as well, which they did. But the Doors also don't get a huge amount of mention in the world that is the 60s. They and do. Do you think so? They get a big mention. Well, it's funny. People are divided on the Doors now, aren't they? I mean, they're considered one of the big you know, classic bands retrospectively. They weren't that massive at the time in the 60s, but... But they weren't uh, part yeah, of yeah. they weren't part then, of the a lot of people hate them now as well. A lot of the punk rock generation hate the Doors because Jim Morrison is kind of too rockist, you know, too sexy, <laughs> too much about the, you know, this too sexual. A lot of feminists don't like Jim Morrison. I don't know, but then obviously he's got a massive fan base as well. But yeah, but because be, but because of the whole you know counterculture Woodstock, they were never part mm. of that. And I know from mm. they were never going to be asked to go to any of those kind of um, festivals. Well, they went to the Isle yeah. of Wight, 
Mm. Yeah, but I know that Dave David Crosby from Crosby, Stills and Nash, when he refers to them, he says they were like the underside to some rotten place that you know you didn't want to go to because they were kind of, yeah. I don't know, they were kind of a bit too out there and they were never part of yeah. that kind of lovey-dovey mm. scene. I mean, even the Velvet un- Underground, I always get confused with the film Goldmine, but the Velvet Underground gets such kudos because of the Andy Warhol and you know, John Cale and yeah. Lou Reed. But I think the Doors... Personally, I just think they're one of those bands that get a little bit squeezed out because everyone feels a little bit. I don't know. They don't. They just don't fit into any kind of nice little mm. scene that much. But I mean, personally, I, I sort of, I still find them sort of mesmerising. But um, yes. But then, but then you went and recorded your first. So with the, with the first band you were in, The Fall, which has still become very kind of. It really. You you recorded this down in London, didn't you? Recorded eighty five, uh, eighty was it seventy eight? Uh, which trials you talking about? Yes. Which trials? Yeah, we we made that in London in uh, seventy eight. That's right. Yeah, December I think seventy eight. And before that, you did the one which was the Bingo Masters Breakout. Did when you Bingo got, Masters Breakout was that an album that came together relatively quickly? Well, um, that was a culmination of. The Falls' existence, uh, you know, two years of playing together live, and you know, the previous year of just writing stuff in the attic together. Uh, so that album, although we recorded it in two days, so it was live in the studio. Um, you know, all that two years of work had gone into the writing of those songs. You know, like any band's first album, it's kind of a big lead-up of inspired ideas, or oh, you know, your first ideas. Um, are all there on which trials? You know? Yes, it's, it's got the the energy and the immediacy, but um, you know, there's a lot of experience leading up to it, I guess. And were you because I know from Joy Division, they were really disappointed when they heard the the first album and thought Martin Hannett had done a terrible job. What was your experience yeah. when you yeah. listened to the this uh, with that particular release live at the Witch Trials? I thought it was great. It was a great album. Um, Carl Burns is exceptional. You can just listen to the drums on that record, and uh, it's a classic in that sense alone. Um, but the band's so tight, and the songs are very original. There's loads of fresh energy and uh, insight. It's a, you know, I mean, I, I I have a 40 year distance on it now, so I can appreciate it, um, you know, as a fan. I, I can remove myself from the experience and enjoy the music. Yes. Which so I know it's a great album. I, I enjoyed it at the time. I thought it was very good. I mean, I, I sympathise with Joy Division. I kind of agree with their initial feeling about that album. I didn't like Martin Anna's production work at the time either, but it, now it's legendary because music's very subjective and you get used to sounds. I mean, like, when I first heard Raw Power by the Stooges, I, I was disappointed because I, I bought it without hearing it on import. And um, for two weeks, it was like, oh, it sounds like a bad cross between Alice Cooper and the Rolling Stones, but... After two weeks, it was my favourite album because um, I started to love the way Iggy Pop screamed. It seemed to I could identify with his, how he felt. But yeah, so music's like that, very subjective. Yeah, I, I didn't rate Martin on it, so I can sympathise with Joy Division there. Yes. But obviously, it's a classic album now, so I'm a fool to not appreciate his genius. Did you go to the exhibition in Manchester and see the letter from Ian Curtis, kind of really damning the recording? No, I've not read that. Um, I've not been to that exhibition. Yes. Um, my nana was a strange character, and um, 
yeah, I mean, they're not technically technically great recordings, but you, you, once you get used to a sound, you can't improve it by remastering it or remixing it. You know, it sounds very subjective, and once you accept something and it evokes a certain mood, then that's the perfect version of that. So even if it's badly recorded technically, uh, it becomes an iconic sound, and then it's irreplaceable. You can't improve it with technology. You just got Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm saying about the Stooges album, and same with the first Joy Division album. And nearly four recorders, I guess, but I, I, uh, maybe more Binger Master's Breakout was a bit rougher. But I think by, on Witch Trials, we had a great production, actually. We were very lucky with Bob Sargent yes. producing. And we, yeah, so we were very happy with it at the time, and I still am, to answer the question. I know. think, um, and now it's <laughs> had probably books written about it, doesn't it, as well? I imagine so, yeah. yeah. People, people go back and they love these things. <laughs> I'm sure Stuart, Stuart Lee will do a... A documentary about it one day. He'll love it, really. Yep. When did you... I mean, and then after that, then you went on to form the Blue Orchids. Did that... Was the... After the release, were you in the band for that much longer? I can't quite sort of figure out how long you were. Well, no, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, uh, I think we recorded that in December and then it came out in March and then I left in April. Right. Um, yeah. Not quite. So, you know, just very intense period, I suppose. We've yes. been in each other's pockets for... A few years, we were getting a lot of attention, and uh, we, you know it was like all the tension and aggression of punk rock, and the over familiarity. I don't know. We'd had enough of each other after two years of, uh, you know, all that work and attention. I suppose. Yes. Well, it's probably like goes a man. to your head as a teen, teen or early twenties by then. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I know the Zombies when they brought out their classic album, they'd actually split up beforehand, and it was only. <laughs> 30 or 40 years later when people started writing about it and saying that's one of my favourite albums Oracle and yeah. something that um, they went back and decided to reform you probably decided not yeah. to go back and reform the original lineup, which was a wise idea mm. but did it take much energy because all these creative projects always take quite a bit to get off the ground did you find yeah. sort of starting the, the, the Blue Orchids quite hard going thinking God I've done this before now I've got to do it again but this time I'm definitely going to be the main man. Yeah, I, and I didn't see it in those terms, really. Um, uh, you know, my, my time in the fall was done. I, you know, it just wasn't getting along with the situation. So I, I wanted to continue making music, of course, but um, I wanted to do something that didn't sound like the fall. So it was like, the, you know, the, the idea was to start a new band with a new sound, which is a, a big ask after you've been involved with something like the fall. But... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You didn't ask. You didn't really question yourself as to why. Oh, you're still there. You've gone. Oh, Paul. Oh, oh. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, it just said poor connection. It just it stopped there. But you said just was saying right. you you don't question yourself, and then it went quiet. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Now I lost my thread. Yeah. Uh, starting the Blue Orchids, although it was a, a, a an ambitious thing to do to start an, another band and be as good as the Fall, which is a, a lot to ask. I didn't see it in those terms because um, it, it was just the, the next phase of the adventure in music. Um, I, yeah, always to forge forward and create an, another new sound. I don't know. It seemed, you don't really analyse these things too much at the time, you know. That's just what the 
the you know that's the intention. That's the mission we were on. Yes. Yeah. And did you get a record? Like, you won. This is on your first album, the greatest hit. Um, yeah. This was on Rough Trade. Did that sort of line up quite quickly? Because because I, I know this yeah. is a really simplistic way of looking at music, but hey, I love yeah. I love this idea. You know, you had that kind of punk period, then post punk, and then there was a kind of that interesting, vaguely interesting sort of bit where it's all a bit like what's going to happen next, and then sort of eighty three. Yeah. The, you know, the Smiths came along and they felt like for yeah. the next five years during their lifetime, yeah. there was definitely a bit of a 80s indie scene. I know there was like the goth mm. scene and there was the Paisley scene and lots mm. of, you know, the sort of rockabilly, psychabilly kind of stuff as well. But there was definitely a period where you had the Smiths and the June Bright and Yeah, Yeah, No and the go-betweens, the Triffids. You know, it was like, God, this is yeah. quite a scene. And you'd sort of come along just before that, you know, in a period... Yeah. And I just wondered what it was, you know, what it was kind of like, sort of trying to work out how to tackle the 80s. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, the 80s was kind of unknown territory. Um, I was surprised the way music went, in a way, by the mid-80s. Because um, we really thought we were at the frontiers of a new kind of music, um, naively, because, you know, being in our early 20s and stuff, we, had, we were very idealistic and thought... Music was really going to become, um, uh, well, it's hard to say what, but um, yeah, then you start to hear things like Material Girl, and uh, music became very materialistic, uh, and we thought it was going to become, I don't know, I don't know, you can you know, say naive and idealistic, and you're making this music, you think it's significant and cutting edge or whatever, you're just doing your best to not talk down to people and to be interesting, I don't know, you know, it's a, it's a funny old thing trying to express yourself. Yes. Um, yeah. The the eighties was just so many people threw so threw so much at the fan, you know, or, or at the wall, and some of it hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, very musically diverse time. It was. Yes. I think it, it's become that because you went because you obviously before the album you did you know that was when the release of the flood came out which must have grabbed everyone's kind of attention and and obviously John Peel but then there was a kind of and I suppose one of the things that must have helped with a lot of bands during that period was that we had you know for that period there was a job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes which allowed mm -hmm. a lot of people to be signing on and getting some sort of payment yeah while mm -hmm. being in a band and then you had those kind of you had the the gatekeepers that was John Peel and you had the the music papers which were weekly mm -hmm. and every city and town had sort of their alternative indie night yeah probably towards the beginning of the week so you yeah. you know it did it did sort of help people you know encourage people and then you as the 80s mm -hmm. progressed you had mm -hmm. sort of bog shed stump big flame you know some really mm -hmm. sort of interesting but bands who weren't going to make too many albums were they let's face it yeah. you, you, you know you, you can only cope with so much big flames material and um so i just wondered what you know what it was like being an artist sort of trying to navigate that period while while seeing on one side that trevor horn production and then the other mm -hmm. side you had sort of morrissey and the smiths yeah yeah well it's, it was difficult yeah it's difficult um yeah i mean um as you get slightly older more into the music business side of things it's very hard to keep um that you know, the light of inspiration alive because there's so many pressures to conform to what um, the business thinks will be successful uh, that you lose sight of why you were making music. So I was very wa wary of all that. Uh, whereas other people 
were happier to kind of um, try and please uh, expectations. Uh, and, and usually that doesn't last very long. You know, a few minor successes, and then people kind of lose their way. But um, so, so I kind of threw back a bit from that. I think after the initial rough trade years. Yes. And just kind of did things on my own terms, and and just kind of. Uh, uh, yeah, I was just kind of watching. I, I, I'm kind of a late developer. I'm much more um, able to um, express myself now, I think, and uh, make music. I, I became very wary because after the initial thing of thinking you've got a right to you tell them what you think and make art and make statements, uh, yeah, but by my mid-20s and the mid-80s, I was kind of like questioning myself and my right to kind of be making statements in music it made me a bit more reticent and maybe I was a bit more under the radar as a result yeah. yes well you it was you know the 80s for you was a really intense time because the only, mm. there was a lot of change of band members and then there was kind of different yeah. sort of you know like musical you know uh, projects and then by the end yeah. of the 80s you went back and did extricate as yeah. well was that a, yeah. did you get a phone call out of the blue saying hey do you fancy no, no. The opposite. I decided to call Mark out of the blue. You know, literally, I, I just—I had a band called Thirst for a couple of years with Carl Burns. They were also made an EP on Rough Trade. I don't know if you're aware of that band, but one of my lesser-known projects, maybe. <laughs> but um, when that band—it was like gloriously doomed from day one. Uh, it was me, Carl, and his 18-year-old girlfriend, and a, a bass player who was Carl Speed Dealer, and I was the singer and guitarist, of course. And uh, we did this one EP for Rough Trade. Did quite a lot of gigs and stuff, but took a lot of drugs as well, of course. And then we fell apart. We we fell out. And anyway, so I was like, what am I going to do next? And Bricks had just left for fall, and I hadn't spoken to Mark for like 10 years. And um, But I still had his phone number, which hadn't changed. And I just phoned him out of the blue and said, you know, fancy doing a bit of songwriting. Because all our differences were kind of water under the bridge, you know, as far as I was concerned. Yes. We just hadn't spoken for ages, but we had no reason to do it. So, so I just phoned him up, simple as that. And he said, yeah, bring the guitar. And so I went out to his house with the guitar, and we wrote three songs in an afternoon. And uh, It was on. Just started, started writing songs together. I didn't um, get invited to rejoin the fall immediately. That took a few months. Uh, but yes. it became obvious that that would be the next step, I guess. Because that, yeah. that was quite an intense ba- uh, period for the band as well, because they'd done... Yeah. I'm a curious. Very busy period that year, yeah. It was very because I remember going to see I'm a Curious Orange down in London with Mar- uh, Michael Clark's dance company, yeah. which is very yeah. arty. And um, and but then by the time you rejoined the band, you know mm. we'd sort of had the sort of rave scene was in full swing. Plus we had yeah. the Seattle grunge scene as well. And mm. and mm. with this, you know, extricate you you'd sort of teamed up with people like Adrian Sherwood and Cold. Yeah. Cold Cut. Cold what play. was that yeah. like recording? Sounds like some Cold Cut. Cold Play. No, not Cold Play. Uh, um, yeah, no, obviously. What was it like in the um, studio with that particular album? It was um, a mixed bag because it was a lot of money was spent on the recording of that album because it was recorded in like three or four different studios, you know, sort of state of the art studios. We, some was done at the Virgin Manor. We, we spent, you know, couple of weeks at the Virgin Manor, uh, Swan Street in London in the British Museum. We were in with Adrian Sherwood. Uh, yeah, so various studios over a few months and various lineups of the band. I don't think the whole band w- 
weren't in the studio together for most of the album. It was all done in bits, you know. I think we worked we worked better when we were all playing live together, like on the John Peel sessions. Yes. Uh, like... At the time, I mean, you can hear the John Peel session that came out just after the album, or at the same time, and the, there were better versions of the songs. I think when we'd all just playing live and. That's the way I prefer to work. But yeah, Extra Cake was cost a lot of money to make. It was recorded over a few months at a lot of expensive studios. But yeah. I just rejoined the band. So and did you? And were you touring with the band for that album? Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, according to Steve Hanley, he said no. That was the fall's busiest year because we just signed a deal with a Polygram, uh, and it was like the, the fall's biggest record deal, I think. Um, so that Extricate was the best-selling Fall album, also. Nice. Surprisingly, it's not, I'm not saying it's the best album, but it sold really well because it got promoted all over the world. I mean, the Fall did a world tour that year to promote that album. So, we, you know, we were in Australia, all over Europe, we went to Brazil, America, etc. You know, we got around the world that year. You must have been yeah. totally cream-crackered by the end of it. Yeah, it was a mad, intense period. Yeah, there's some mad times. Yes, it's brilliant. Yeah. It must have had its but, moments, but then, yes. Yeah, did you leave after the tour or during, during the tour? I can't work that out actually. Well, I was fired in Australia at the end of the Australian leg of a, a tour. They were going on to Japan, but Mark said, "Fire Marsha and I." Uh, at the end of the Australian leg of that particular jaunt. Yes, so, my God. Uh, yeah, you know what can you do? So, um, so did you get? Did you both have to come back together on the same plane? Yeah, um, we literally, it was the end of the Australian tour, so everyone had been out celebrating the various clubs. I got back to the hotel that we were all in about 3 a.m. I went to get my key at the reception and um, there was a letter for me. And Mark had written me a letter on hotel uh, headed notepaper saying that, you know, sorry to uh, tell you this, but, you know, Love your work, but you're fired. Something, <laughs> and a, a, and a one-way ticket back to the, the UK for eight uh, eight thirty that same morning. So it's like three a.m. I get the letter, and plus he's moved the band and all the, the road crew to another hotel. So I can't even go and knock on anyone's door in the you know <laughs> in the night and say what the fuck's this? Yes. I've gone to an hotel and left no forwarding address, and just left a letter at reception with a ticket uh, back to England. For eight thirty the same morning, yes. so that was it. So it's, uh, that was goodbye to the fall. No, quite oh, strange. That was a strange one. And did Marcia have the same sort of letter as well? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Because we were we were together. We, we came back to the hotel together, and we both had letters waiting for us and tickets. So yeah, we got the same plane home. My God, that's like <laughs> Godfather Two, isn't it? That's yeah, extra. slightly. <laughs> yeah, did you ever quite a blow? That must have been a hell of a blow. You didn't yeah. see it coming either. Well, I can't say I didn't see it coming. No, it's a, yeah, it was very much in the air. Yes. Well. I thought it might happen when we got back to England, put it that way. But I didn't. I was really looking forward to going to Japan, of course. I'd never been to Japan. And Mark knew that as well, so I think he wanted to just deprive me of that one yes. final pleasure. Um, <laughs> did Marcia, and how did Marcia feel about it? Did she just go, Cal surprise? Or was she devastated? She was very pissed off, but she felt she a uh, time in the fall was done anyway. I think she was a bit pissed off with the fall. Being a New Yorker, she wasn't so in awe of the fall. It was kind of a job. She, she enjoyed the kudos of being in the fall, but it, it was a job she was getting bored of. 
Yes. It's the nature, the nature of Marshall, I think. She's enjoyed it, but, you know, it's just... I don't know. You've got to move on. She kind of handled it fairly well. We were both pretty pissed off to um, lose the, the job because the money was quite good as well. Apart from anything else, you're out of work. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and also Australia is a long way to travel <clears throat> when you're feeling... That, that as well, yeah. I mean, the initial shock of the day was more about, yeah, just getting on a plane and coming home and leaving everyone without being able to say goodbye to your friends, you know, within the, the crew and the band. You know, it's like... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go on about it. No, no, God, I know. But... Asking me the question, you know, it was a difficult day, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah, difficult well, but... few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you then get together with <clears throat> with Craig Gammon from Gannon, from, the, well, I mean, he did have a short period in the Smiths, and you, you sort of got the Blue Orchids back on the road yeah. again, didn't you? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I came back and had to do something. It seemed a sensible thing to use the the name Blue Orchids. Because, I mean, there's never been a reunion of original Blue Orchids or anything like that. I mean, each record has had a slightly different lineup. So, yeah, when I was fired from the fall, I, I sort, of, sort of put another lineup, another band together, and, and used the name Blue Orchids, which I, was, I mean, tiled to do, obviously. But people do. So, yeah, there is this thing of if a band reforms, it ought to be original members, or it's some kind of a like you're cheating people. I don't know, but if you're going to work as a musician, you kind of got to go with... I've had this thing recurring over the years of changing the name of the band that I'm working with or, or the name I'm using. Uh, and I keep coming back to Blue Orchids as a strong brand. I've always been told this by uh, record labels and business-minded people that Blue Orchids is the strong brand that you're associated with and you should use that. And I keep... You know, so finally, I'm 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 at peace with that, but uh, yeah, um, yes, I made I made some uncommercial decisions about changing my name and, and starting afresh, as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, mm. what was your question of? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I was excited when you started talking about branding. I thought oh, this is very exciting. <laughs> so, no, you've got to stick with the same brand because otherwise, it gets very well. Well, yeah, as an artist, you can try and sidestep that and, and rebrand yourself or come up with another concept and another uh, you know you know but um it's hard to get the public's attention and for people to keep on board with the changes especially nowadays i mean it was kind of easier you were talking before about the you know three newspapers three music papers a week and everybody reading them and, and all the indie gigs everywhere in the 80s and then it's much easier to make those kind of decisions then because uh, there was those some journalists following what you were doing and prepared to write about it but now everybody's not reading the same three uh, music papers every week, and so it's it's really hard to um, make people aware of subtle changes. So you got to kind of stick with yes. whatever handle you've got on you know on public attention. So for me, it, it's Blue Orchids, and that's fine. So. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I did an interview with a guy who was in was it the Calvin Party in Levelers Five. Oh yeah, and um, he calls himself JD Meatyard, and he's a lovely I guy. Know. But yeah. my God, I just think as names go, that was not the best one I've ever come across. <laughs> JD Meatyard. It's like, Meatyard, yeah. and he's a vegetarian. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. I think the Blue Orchids. I think you're safe with that. You know, it's it's not yeah. it's not going to date. It's a good vegan name. It's a good. It's a good. Be, yes, it's 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 going to be okay. You'll be you know. It almost could be. Absolutely. And in this day and age, you know, one can be almost 
apparently sexually fluid. Is it sexual or something like that? I don't. Let's yeah. not. Yeah, fluidity. No. With sex. Your your gender. Mm. Gender fluidity. That's the term. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think we need to worry about that one. So when when no, you sort right. of got this com- combo together, which John used to always he used to love using that term, yeah. um, that lasted until the mid nineties. Did you did did the energy sort of by the the, the sort of the rise of Britpop had had the sort of the the excitement of the Blue Orchids Mark II to quote Spinal mm-hmm. Tap had that slightly um, puttered out by then. Well, um, the trouble was I was really having problems trying to get any kind of record deal um, at, at that point in the mid-90s. It's kind of, uh, like you said, Britpop was starting to happen and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a new generation of young bands. And, and I, I was like x and no longer a spring chicken, I suppose, in the pop world, you know, the rock indie world. And so nobody really wanted to um, release the stuff I was demoing and sending to labels. It was just as simple as that. And I was in my thirties, and I was starting to question the whole thing because it had come quite easily to me, you know, in my late teens. And we'd kind of taken it all for granted, you know. The fall was successful quite quickly because we were in the right place at the right time. And I think by my thirties, I was like, um, you know, I, I just need to get away from it and reassess my relationship to music and why I was making it. Yeah, you know, and um, yeah, it was just a difficult time. We couldn't get anything released. With any to any significant level, so you know you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall. I think it's it's hard for a lot of ex-Fall members to get a record label interested because like the industry will put up with the fall, but ex-Fall and it's like no, nah. you know what I mean. That, that's how I was feeling at the time in the early nineties. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was just a difficult time really, and I, I just gone with my life, got into other things, and I kind of dropped out of music for. A few years, yeah. And then good old Cherry Red Records come along. That's right. And put together a compilation, a darker blue. Yeah. Nice, nice, (laughs) nice play on that. Yeah, they just contacted me out of the blue. I wasn't, I didn't have a band. uh, You know, I was just working a day job. I was living in South London at the time. Uh, In Clapham South, just uh, under the Clapham Common sort of area. But um, yeah, I just got a letter in the post from Cherry Red, funnily enough. But that was the start of um, gradually clawing my way back through the back door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and it must have. Um, I don't know. I guess. I, I guess you know because I know Brick Bricks is now sort of she's been sort of getting music back into her life after quite a bit yeah. a bit of a gap as well. Did it yeah. feel like because of having a day job and then music sort of mm. being much more of a like? Well, this is a nice sideline hustle but I'm not having to sort of focus 100% on that and try and do the whole get a label did it take the pressure off you you know sort of owning the band again and then sort of starting to release new material yeah I mean the first new album I did after that was uh, Mystic Bud for LTM because um, after getting a letter from Cherry Red, I, I then got a letter, because it was still all paper and through the post, I got a letter from LTM Records uh, asking me if I had anything else left over from what I'd given Cherry Red for that compilation. And from that, we uh, put together a few CD releases with LTM. And then, um, well, there was a live one uh, from Severe to Serene, and he released The Sleeper, which was an album we'd made in the early 90s and shelved for like 10 years. And then he said we'd like to make a new record and so I made Mystic Bud but I made it at home it's really a solo album with a couple of friends 
yes. on bass and, and, and keyboards. But again, you know, the label said, I, I, he said, this doesn't sound like a Blue Orchids record initially. And, and I said, well, it's a solo album, call it Martin Brahm. And he's like, no, Blue Orchids is a stronger band. It's going to be Blue Orchids, you know. But get it remastered anyway. So. Yes. But, I mean, it sounds like a Blue Orchids record now. I and get that reaction a lot initially. <laughs> and interestingly enough, that's um, LTM is run by the one yeah. and only James Nice from Norwich. It is. Yes, which indeed. also features such people as Annie Domino and also the name, mm-hmm. all the way from mm-hmm. the names um, who um, I believe were it's on... It's a great f- little label. It's a real um, a quality boutique label. He's very, he's very focused on the artists he gets involved with. And he's, he's um, yeah, a very reliable label boss. You know, he keeps on trucking, keeps on... Um, Really, uh, you know, keep getting the records out there. Uh, you know, yes, I think he's a member of a triathlon club. They've always, they're, people like that are always very organised. Actually, you have to be to do run yeah. a triathlon. So, um, yes. So then, obviously, because a few years ago you did a, a, a collection, a compilation, didn't you? I th- mostly of cover numbers. Uh, you mean the magical record of Blue Orchid? Yes. From um, yeah, two years ago now. Two know. years ago, was that a yeah. kind of because um, everybody makes likes to do? I remember in the I don't know it must have been well David Bowie did pinups, but then that was kind yeah. of quite a one off, and then suddenly everybody was doing that album, which was kind of my favourite songs by Annie Lennox. These are the songs, <laughs> and and suddenly was that a sort of a slight feeling that you had with um, Mystic Bud. With Mystic Bud? No, not Mystic Bud. Um, oh, with the Magical Record. The Magical Record, sorry, yeah. The Magical Record of Blue Orchids. Yeah, it was a funny... Um, the way the album came about was quite odd, really, because initially we were just going in the studio to, like, make... Um, to record three covers to, 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 to give away as freebies with the previous album, Right Just Harmony Fist. The record label wanted us to do, like, a free CD attachment, you know, as an extra bonus thing. And so we went in the studio to record uh, three covers uh, because these, basically because the, the CD was going to be a freebie and I didn't want to write new material and we just we just written and recorded the, that album. So we went in to do three sort of garage songs from the 60s and we ended up doing five in a day rather than three. And I, I, I thought, well, this is half an album, you know, so... Um, after a couple of weeks of choosing another five songs, we went back in the studio and recorded the other side of the album. Um, it's simple as that. But uh, funnily enough, but it became more than that because um, it, it, this was the first recording I'd done since uh, Mark Smith had died. Right. Because he actually, he actually died the day after I finished the final mix of Righteous Harmony Fist. So I'd done that album and then uh, you know Mark passed on, which was... Yeah, you know, big news, and um, and then this is the next time I've been in the studio. So as a musician, and I've been, you know, begun working with Mark. Somehow, being back in the studio after he died, this became about um, our initial musical relationship. It was like uh, before we were the four, we were called the Outsiders, and we never made a record. But in a way, when we loved all that '60s garage psych stuff, and I was kind of making something in the spirit of. It became like um, the album we might have loved when we were 18 or 19, you know. So just recording obscure 60s garage songs and a couple of them were obviously more contemporary. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then in the process, I found this lyric of Mark's because there's one song on there called Addicted to the Day, 
which is a set of words Mark wrote in 77, but he wrote it in a notebook of mine when I was just around his house. Uh, and it just stayed in there and never got used. And I, I discovered it halfway through recording the album and I wrote the music immediately for this lyric that was from 77. And so, um, and, and then we recorded that as the 10th song. My God. Uh, yeah, so the, the whole album became, so that became the pivotal song to the vibe of the album. Uh, and again, it was kind of like, you know, as I say, it was a sort of a homage to our initial, you know, uh, musical loves of the early mid seventies before starting the fall. So yeah, so that, that, yeah, that's why I did that album in the end. That's what it became. But it, it wasn't anything intentional. I didn't walk in the studio with the idea of like, I'm going to write a tribute to my friendship with Mark. It just grew into that, which is kind of spooky in a way, you know, so yes. that album's quite special for me. Well, I suppose that David Bowie's Black Star has a sort of a quality, doesn't it, as well, when you listen to yeah, that? But, uh, but it is also my pin-ups, I admit that. <laughs> you mentioned that earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it's... Between Black Star and pin-ups, maybe, that'll do. Well, that's quite good. <laughs> but it's also quite nice to be able to process these things in a way that feels yeah, yeah. creative and actually, you know, like you can come out of it. Yeah feeling like actually that's that's a kind of a night not a tribute to a, a sort of a an interesting relationship with a ex, no, ex. Not, not intentionally but it kind of just took on that mantle you know at the end of it i've just felt i'd captured that uh, without really setting out to you know it just grew into that it's funny yes just the time it was made in this just saying what was in the air you know because how did you, I mean, because you've obviously been a musician, it's never really the easiest career in the world. And, you've, you know, you work with people like Mark and also yeah. people like Nico. When you sort of look back on yeah. some of those relationships, are you amazed that you managed to sort of survive as you did? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, mm, well, getting to know Nico was uh, a difficult one because... That that was like uh, the the dalliance with heroin and all that because being in Nico's circle suddenly you're being offered heroin for you know for free just on the coffee table you know just a line and to start with and all that yes it was just everywhere around her you know everybody was trying to impress her all, all the people who were you know ligging at her shows with just wanting to get a high you know there was just a lot of people who were, would be giving her heroin and and and, and her band of course. So we suddenly encountered that world. So that, that and that was a big blow to Blue Orchids. I mean that's what really um, put an, the first nail in the coffin of the Blue Orchids kind of momentum in the early mid eighties was uh, particularly the after band became heroin addicts. I mean I, I tried it but I didn't really take to it. You know, to My say. God, that was lucky. <laughs> yeah, but you know the rhythm section became. Junkies and 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 I decided I wanted to stop working with Nico after probably a year or so or a few European tours. But um, the 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 bass player and drummer thought that was a better gig and just carried on working with Nico. Yes. Um, and and what went with it, you know, the heroin. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was a difficult time. Well, I was going to say there was a film that came out. I think it's on Netflix called. It's about Danny Fields, and it's probably called yeah. Danny. But there's a great bit in it with um, Nico and Jim Morrison. I mean, obviously they weren't they weren't there to film the occasion, so they've done it as a sort of cartoon moment yeah. between the two of them. And um, they do sound quite extreme characters. A couple of hours together, you know. Yeah, yes. well, Nico claimed to have been at the hotel in Paris where Jim Morrison died, but she was there. <laughs> 
it's not documented, but she told me that she was there the night he died, but left before he got in the bath or whatever it was. I don't know. Um, so I don't know if Aaron was involved again there, but she was cagey about all that. Yes, well, I guess so, and a bit hazy. Mm. But I, I know from the the New York scene, from various people I've interviewed from that late 70s and early 80s, heroin did absolutely destroy virtually every band and, yeah. and artist. Yeah. And it just we, were, we were at the tail end of the story, because heroin had been like this really cool thing, you know, in the avant-garde music world and stuff, you know. But, but you know, by the time we were um, discovering that, it was... I mean, Nico came to Manchester about the same time as heroin starts to become popular, cheap and available to the working classes. So you you got to start the sort of smackhead thing, you know, what became like the train spotting thing. You know, know, just the working class getting into heroin and and, uh, becoming dependent. I don't don't know I'm going with that, really. But, um, you know, I've just seen a lot of friends become addicted and it's just an ugly kind of dead-end thing, but uh, it always seemed really chic and uh, cosmopolitan. <laughs> you see your black turtleneck sweater, your wraparound shades, and your, 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 your syringe. Yes. No. But uh, I thought it was a crap drug. I tried it. And I never injected it. I smoked it and snorted it and stuff But um, for over a few months. But um, luckily, I, I, I poisoned myself. I, thought, I took far too much one night. I was really ill for days and never could stand the, even the smell of it again after that. So I had a lucky escape in that respect. My God. It was interesting because the two people I always loved, one obviously being David Bowie, the other one was Lemmy, and I always remember him talking about yeah. just absolutely hated heroin and anybody who touched it and just said yeah. it made you a dog and a thief and a, a liar. It does. It, it puts your conscience to sleep. That's how I describe it. You don't give a fuck. It's like that was the feeling I got. It's like, oh, I don't give a fuck. And then I kind of thought, well, I don't give a fuck anyway. I don't need heroin to not care. You know, it's like being the punk generation, I suppose. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't that neurotic that I needed to relax that badly. That you know, the first drug I took was LSD, so I was expected drugs to be quite spectacular. Well, that kind is... of anti-drugs as a teenager. And then suddenly at 16, I, I took LSD, um, out of the blue, we all decided to do it one day. So I, I kind of was anti drugs because I, I was young enough to see the first generation of hippies, and they just looked a mess, you know, stoned and stuff. It looked stupid from a child's point of view, and uh, being straight and being young, you just look at these idiots lying around, not able to talk properly. And I, so I was kind of anti drugs, uh, but then suddenly the LSD, uh, you know, we decided to experiment with that. Age sixteen, so yeah, but that's and it was very strong. So that I thought all drugs should be as profound as that, and uh, I thought heroin might be like LSD, but without the downside, you know, yeah. horrors. But it wasn't. It was just crap. It's just like the ultimate relaxant. Or something. Well, I suppose with LSD, it's, it is quite a psychedelic experience of sort of watching, well, you know, the sky turn purple and. Yeah. The most extraordinary sights, you know. Mm. You get a lot for your money, don't you? Really, let's face it. Yeah. And um, you know, and it's yeah. also from experience, yeah, long experience. But there was kind of like, wow, this is what heaven's going to be like. And then it's like, oh, I think we're in hell. Oh dear. Oh, thank God that's mm. over. After sort of, mm. you know, eight hours. I don't know. And then you think, oh, yeah. I'm not sure. That's not. It's not like having three pints of beer, is it? Really, it's quite. No. A number. It's it's quite tricky. No. 
So yeah. with so just coming back to the the new the new sort of super improved lineup. This is this mm. is the one that now features Vince Hunt from A Witness. Yeah, and Inca Baby's bass player too in his spare time. God. Vince Hunt, yeah, great bass player. Brilliant. And then Howard Jones, not the Howard Jones. Yeah. Um, no, the other one. The other one. <laughs> John Paul Moran. John and... Paul Moran on keyboards. He's the longest serving member of Blue Orchids apart from myself. And then you've got a new electric ukulele player. Yeah, Tansy McNally. Yeah, all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, a great find. Yeah. Yes. So does does as a sort of a, a sort of you know to to not sound you know like a horrible thing, but as a mature band, is it the case a bit like say Brick Smith and and her band and a lot of others? Do you does it feel like this is a much more of a steady, enjoyable, creative experience now? Um. Yeah, I always enjoy it. Um, yeah, every band I've been in, all my bands are kind of organic. I've never really auditioned people and rejected some and, and, and took on others. More or less, anyone who turns up to uh, play with the band is in the band for a while until they're bored or till I till we fall out. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. So basically, if you end up rehearsing with Blue Orchid, you'd probably be in the band. I don't think I've ever told anyone no. So it's quite an organic thing. I kind of accept what the universe brings me and try to work with it as a musician. That's the way I've learned to. So I, I always enjoy the experience. And at the moment, it's probably just as tough for them. I mean, I'm very critical. Over the, the last weekend when we played um, Bristol, London and Brighton, I mean, I was pretty pissed off with them by uh, London. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not necessarily all roses now we're older. Because uh, I, I just hear all the faults and I have to speak up. That's my job, you know, to make them better. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm not you... as bad as Mark Smith, of course. No, but are you a bit more like <laughs> James Brown? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, more like James Brown than Mark Smith. Yeah, but I always remember he would sort of point round, you know, if he heard somebody. And... Yeah, he'd, he'd find people. He would find people. Money and the wages. Yeah. And he would sort but of go. I don't do that. And he would sort of like wag his finger and say, that was a bad mm. note. You know, I heard yeah. that, you know, so... I, I, yeah, I'm known to make them start songs again and things like that, which is embarrassing. That's to be done. God, I did an interview the other day with somebody who mentioned <laughs> going to see a band who would just... Was it Captain Beefheart or somebody who would sort of make them kind of start until they got it right and then they would sort of yeah. go, regardless if there was an audience or not. And it was like yeah, quite, yeah. quite extraordinary. No, I'm like that. I get temperamental on stage. I just want to hear it sounding right. And I, I can't put up with mediocre depends on my mood but yeah but you're asking that is it easier now are we happier now i don't think so but it's, it's always worthwhile yes but this is a great band but i'm I'm just as critical because you know we've got to be our best selves haven't we? well absolutely and no you've got to have standards in this mm. this world otherwise it's just what's the point so does that just mean and you might have mentioned this at the beginning does that mean you've got Material that you're you're just waiting to go back into the studio and recording this year. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm hoping to record um, late September, early October because I've, I've written uh, ten new songs, so that's an album. Uh, the band has just got to learn it reasonably to a standard where they can go in the studio and sort of work out the endings. <laughs> yes. Keep it fresh. You know. And where are you going to be recording this? I've not booked a studio yet. 
Um, I might go back to Wrexham in Wales to rock too, where we did the magical record of Blue August, funnily enough, because that's got quite a nice uh, natural sounding suite there. Did you say Rockfield? Um, rock too. Oh, sorry. Rock too in Wrexham. Wrexham, not, Wales. Not, not, yeah. not Rockfield. Not, yeah, not, no, not that one. Yeah. So anyway. No, it's a nice one. And and also, just lastly, do you have a producer that you feel really comfortable working with? I tend to produce myself, really. Uh, work with, I usually work with the engineer provided by the studio, and uh, I do most of the mixing myself with just the help of... Every time I've made a record, it's been you know, a different team of people, really. So I don't have a favourite producer I work with. I have some favourite producers. I mean, uh, Tony Visconti is a great producer, for instance. I've never worked with him, though. But, yeah. but I've learned a lot from him. Uh, from you know reading interviews and listening to how he works, uh, for in, as a for instance, yeah, yeah, but I, I really produce my own records, but with some help usually, right? <laughs> nice At one. some point, yeah. So um, yes, are you a control yeah. freak then? I don't think I am, but other people might disagree with that. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I think I'm pretty reasonable. I mean, I've met some control freaks. I, I do listen. I'm, I'm prepared to listen, but I have to have the last say. In that sense, I'm a control freak. I think there has to be a firm decision from someone. Somebody has to be at the helm yes. in these projects. You know, you can't be a democracy. It, it can make things a bit mediocre, you know. Well, actually, it's interesting because I remember doing an interview with Joseph Porter, who was in Blythe Power, and he, I think he took 30 years to realise that he should have just said at the beginning, actually, this is my band, Blythe Power is yeah. me. Mm. And to be honest, we're not going to have equal voting rights. And, you know, mm. if I write write the song, I'm not going to include all the other members of the band on it because, you know, they're my, they're my songs. So, he, you know, it was quite interesting. He'd started yeah. with that anarcho-punk kind of anarchist kind of, mm. Mm. we all want yeah, to be yeah. sort of diplomatic. And, That's um, right. And then well, I've been through all that myself, yeah. And then, totally get that. <laughs> and then he thought, no, actually, I do all the work. I carry it. So mm. from now on, life will be easy. So there you go. I think you've just got to sort yeah. these things out sometimes, don't you? So anyway, look, if you were able just then, just lastly, to, to sort of say something to your 16, 18-year-old self, I just wondered, is there any advice or any kind of words of wisdom that you'd have wanted to whisper and say, look? Yes. I'd say keep doing what you're doing. You got the right idea. <laughs> Good. Well, I have to say, the new album. You know, I know this probably sounds incredibly corny, but it does sound stunning, actually. You know, and you and, you and 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 as somebody who's probably very critical, you probably go, "Yes, I know it sounds good." Thank you for mm. telling me that. But it's no, um, I'm, I'm getting very good feedback. I'm very pleased. It's, um, the addition of that electric ukulele, which is playing most of the lead. I mean, it sounds like a lead guitar. It's an electric uke. And so don't be listening for ukuleles, folks. Uh, the, most of the lead guitar is that ukulele, and it's a great addition. It's, it's added, added a new spontaneity that I knew was kind of lacking to some extent. Um, so, so it is a great album, for, partly for that, and just generally the musicianship. And the, and the fact we, we recorded it quickly, and the songs are, are good too. Yes. Good. Well, thanks, yeah, I agree. It is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I loved it. And um, yes, like I said, uh, the vocals and that sort of passion. But, uh, you know, I have to say The Flood is still, you know, is one of the greatest yeah. songs ever written, isn't it? Let's face it. It is. Uh, ah, you know, thank you. It's always going to be there to the end of time. Mm. 
really. But anyway, look, thank you ever so much for giving me yeah. the time for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link to the interview and then you can always post it on whatever uh, potential sites yeah, you have. Uh, 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 is this a, uh, an interview for radio or are you... Oh, radio, yes, it's radio, it's going to just oh, be audio. I didn't play, you didn't say at the beginning, so yeah. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were just recording it to uh, write a piece of no, it's just kind of no radio stuff. So uh, that will be that. Okay, no, but that's, ramble too much. No, God, it's brilliant. But anyway, look, okay. thank you ever so much for your time. And um, yes, uh, hopefully you'll be able to sort of tour some more. Hopefully, come to Norwich one day if if the yeah. the stars line well, up. Well, love to. Yeah, hopefully next year there'll be less restrictions and we can uh, get back to touring again. The band is very keen to. We've got a mini tour with the Nightingales in November. Oh, uh, fantastic! Just a few dates in November, and then uh, we're playing Manchester Night and Day on December the 3rd, which will be our first Manchester gig of the year. So. Nice. Oh, that'll be fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so again, much again, and um, all the okay. best, and looking forward to your yeah. next album. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Cheers. Um, see you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was me. I love leaving that last bit in just in case you're still listening, which is kind of amazing because um, it just has me fumbling over the end. How to say goodbye in a beautiful way or not. Anyway, a massive thank you to Martin Brammer for giving me the time for that interview. And like I said, the Blue Orchids have got a new album out, Speed the Day, um, which is fantastic. And that's just me slightly sounding a bit grovelly. But, you know, there you go. And that's life. Um, if you want to contact me, you can. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastor. And you can um, find me. Yes, you can. On Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just do C86 show. All these um, interviews, chats have been archived. And also um, on Spotify, not Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, if you wanted to contact me. For some nice reason, you can just do C86 show. And that's it. Anyway, um, I'm going to go now. So have a great week. Stay safe.